you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, they'll put one in your hand, mark to our passage, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you today. We pick things up in Romans chapter 15 at verse 14. Now, uh, Paul writes, now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, full of all, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the broad diversity of your word, all of the different things that it communicates, but also all of the different ways that it does. And we pray that you would meet our hunger for you, Lord, our desire to grow in your call and your plan for our lives, to explore the fullness of the Christian life uh, as much as we can this side of glory. And we pray that you would use your word today to sanctify us, Jesus, as you said, sanctify them by your truth, thy word is truth. And so we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would instruct us, Lord, and that you would bless us now in our time of study of your word. And we pray these things in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. At this particular point, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 15, Paul really kind of now begins to formally close his uh, letter to the church in Rome. And I think that uh, perhaps uh, in our day and age, it's important to spend a moment or two this morning just talking a little bit about uh, the form that a letter used to take in the ancient world and the form that a handwritten letter would have uh, uh, taken even within recent decades in the United States uh, of America, uh, given how much of our communication today is by way of uh, email and texting and Twitter and these kinds of electronic means of communication. You might have noticed that throughout our study, I have referred to this uh, book of the Bible as Paul's letter to the church at Rome. You've never heard me say, now let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Paul's email to the church at Rome, uh, because what he does here is very different than how we communicate even in email. The format that a letter typically took in those days, would, it would always begin with a kind of a, a personal uh, greeting. It would be followed by the main body of the letter, the reason, the main thrust and reason for which the letter was written. And then finally, it would close once again with some personal remarks. And I think most of us recognize this from either letters that we've written over time 
uh, certainly the older you are, the more you recognize it, or the letters that we have received from other people. And so Paul, he began his letter to the church in Rome with an introduction there in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And then he introduced the main theme, the main uh, purpose of the letter, uh, justification on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ for salvation in verses 16 and 17. Let me just read those to you for your uh, jarring your memory. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And with those two verses, he begins what he, uh, the, the, he would unpack, the thrust, the, 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 the content, the subject of, of those two verses, then all the way through chapter 15, verse uh, 13. And that core of that uh, letter there from chapter 1, verse 16 to chapter 15, verse 13 is divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11, uh, almost purely doctrinal. And then chapter 12 through 15, 13 is uh, very much applicational. And now, uh, Paul, closing this letter, he returns to kind of the personal element of a letter, and yet all the time being fully inspired by the Holy Spirit in, in doing so. And this personal part of the letter is, is perhaps uh, all of the more valuable, certainly it was to Rome, uh, given the fact that Paul had uh, never visited this church in Rome. Uh, the church in Rome was different from many other churches. Paul had started and planted churches all over the Roman Empire, but he, had ne he did not plant the church in Rome, and he had never visited that church. And so, uh, these, uh, kind of, uh, this kind of personalness and openness and I think really unguarded friendliness uh, that Paul expresses here toward them, I think would have probably meant a great deal to them. And not only a great deal to them, but because it's recorded for us in Scripture, it means a great deal to us uh, as, as well. And I think that one of the things that I like about these sections of Paul's letters as he writes them is because in these personal sections, Paul reveals a great deal about himself personally. And he reveals a great deal about uh, how he viewed uh, Christian ministry. And throughout the book of Romans, Paul has made almost no personal uh, mention of himself. I think there's only two times in the 15 chapters that he refers to himself on a personal level at all. And, uh, and, uh, but here, uh, now he does, and he does in earnest. What he reveals to uh, us here is invaluable, I think, to all of us as Christians, as he reveals his thinking, as he reveals his motivations, his thoughts related to Christianity, related to doctrine, related to how he viewed God. Because uh, when we look at Paul, uh, I think as, uh, the longer we walk as Christians, there's a greater desire, there's an immense respect for him. I mean, you have Jesus Christ in a category of one in human history. But I think that after Jesus himself, there's probably no single individual in human history who has impacted more people uh, and impacted them for God than the Apostle Paul himself. So the, the, the sheer scope of his ministry, the quality of it, uh, what he endured in order to fulfill his ministry 
uh, us longing to have that same kind of, of impact, that same kind of faithfulness and, and perseverance. We look at his life for clues for what made him tick and in order that they, those very same things might mark our lives, though the scope of our ministry will surely be uh, uh, smaller. And so through this section, really from verse 14 all the way through verse 33 here, I want to endeavor to examine what Paul communicates to them and us here, but also to endeavor to examine what it reveals about Paul himself. You notice in verse 14, Paul, uh, Paul's affirmation of the church in Rome. Uh, Paul had been, as we've seen, very, very exhortive uh, uh, of, uh, to them. And uh, in, in this uh, application section of the letter, especially concerning the issue of Christian liberties, and he wanted them to know that in exhorting them that this instruction was not accusatory uh, toward them and uh, that he held them in the highest regard. You notice his description of them. He declares them to be full of goodness, that is morally good. These were Christians who uh, not only talked the talk, uh, but they walked the walk and they walked the talk, and Paul knew that that was true of them. He describes them as being full of all knowledge. In other words, they had a very, very firm grasp of Christian doctrine. They were uh, deeply uh, rooted in the Word of God. And then he uh, declares that they were also able to admonish one another. And by this, they had a working knowledge of the Scriptures. And none of us as Christians want to ever stop uh, learning the Bible until we have a working uh, knowledge of the Scriptures so that when issues occur within our lives, uh, there are passages of the Bible that come immediately to our minds to know that this is what God's Word says about this kind of a trial or this kind of spiritual warfare or this kind of, of a test or how I'm to conduct myself in this kind of a conversation. And none of us should ever stop in growing in our knowledge of the Word until we can not only do that related to ourselves, but then also do that to one another and to do it to others so that someone would come up and say, this is what I'm facing, this is what's going on in my life, and they're undone or they're overwhelmed, whether a Christian or non-Christian, and immediately we're able to say from the Scriptures, this is what God's Word says uh, about how to view that or how to handle that. Uh, situation. And here was a church that had uh, not only a, a, a deep, deep understanding of the Word of God, but they had this working knowledge of the Word of, of God uh, as well. Paul's description of them reveals that them to be a very, very spiritually mature congregation, which is uh, probably what allowed Paul to write this kind of a letter to them to begin with. I mean, this is a very, very weighty, substantial uh, letter that he's written to them. And you might stop and think and you say, what kind of a church can Paul write a letter like this to? He certainly couldn't have written it to the church at Corinth. Uh, that church was like spiritual babies. They were uh, completely dominated by the flesh. The whole church is uh, one great conflict, and, 
and chaos, though there were, without a doubt, spiritual Christians within, but they were not the majority. They were not the kind of church that Paul could describe in the way he had just described the, the church in, in Rome. Uh, if Paul had written a, uh, this particular letter to the church at Corinth, it would have never been appreciated. I mean, on the, on the Sunday evening service or, or whatever service, they would have received the letter from uh, Paul and then called a special service for it to be read. Uh, half the congregation in Corinth would have fallen asleep uh, halfway through uh, the, the, the letter. And uh, here you have a church that this kind of a letter could be written to. Not all churches are the same in this regard. I mean, some pastors, they have to filter the depth and the content of, of their teaching and, and uh, bring, dumb it down to kind of the general carnality and, and the spiritual immaturity of, of a congregation. And then you have other congregations like the church in Rome who are eager to be challenged, eager to be taken very deep into their understanding of the Scriptures and salvation and what God is like. and and uh, how he, he sees things. And when those kind of things are brought before that kind of a congregation, it's met with a hunger, a desire to, uh, and, uh, to uh, learn all of these things, even with an excitement. And, and uh, I think certainly you are uh, that kind of a congregation. I mean, here we are nearing the end of what is thus far a 56-sermon series on the book. And uh, here you sit, whatever condition you're in, in the privacy of your own heart. I don't go there. I might stop commending you. Uh, but, uh, but, but here you are, all kidding uh, aside. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I never put a sermon together and, uh, and think, oh, no, I've got to water this thing down or I've got to take something that could be said in five minutes and make it a three-part series because they won't uh, be able to with, uh, withstand it. And I know that not every church is like that, and I appreciate you for it. The letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, I mean, they were highly, highly uh, corrective because the church was in constant need of, of uh, correction. But it's interesting to realize concerning this church, uh, his letter to the church in Rome, there's virtually no correction in it at all. Uh, there is instruction. There is exhortation. Uh, but there is almost no uh, correction. And this was a very, very strong, uh, spiritually mature church uh, concerning which Paul could say, uh, that's a church that I can write a letter like this to and know that it will be received and that it will be appreciated. And for 2,000 years worth of Christians now uh, have been thankful that such a church existed in the ancient world for Paul to write uh, such a letter to them. Paul understood the, the importance of encouragement. We certainly see it here as he expresses encouragement to them. He understood the importance of encouragement in people's lives. And uh, yes, the exhortation is often needed and, uh, in, in people's lives, but it's important to remember. And, uh, and I uh, preach to myself first and foremost uh, in, in all of this, but to all of us as well, uh, to remember to affirm what a person, it, it, when a person is doing well uh, also. And Paul does exactly that here. 
And uh, that's a good reminder, whether in our Christian service with one another or our marriages or the raising of our children or our workplaces or anywhere. Sometimes the hard things must be said, and, and, uh, and, uh, but the encouragement goes a long way as well. You notice also in verse 15 in particular, but it really goes over into verse 16 as well, that Paul decides, he feels compelled to explain his boldness, the boldness with which he had written this letter to the church there in Rome. Again, realizing that Paul did not have a personal relationship with this church. He did not establish this church. And so uh, he didn't have the kind of relationship that he had with these other churches that he did. And so he didn't want his boldness with which he had written to them to be misunderstood. I think most often people will uh, not accept a exhortation from a relative stranger uh, as they might from a friend. Even though the truth is the truth, uh, if the shoe fits, we ought to wear it, whatever the messenger is. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, we put up a defense, what we might readily listen to and take to heart by someone that we know well and have a history with. Uh, we can become defensive uh, about uh, that same truth when it's somebody that we don't have a personal relationship with, it's delivering the message. And Paul understood all of that. And so uh, he explained that though he had spoken to them boldly, uh, that, but he had done it out of a faithfulness to God's calling upon his life as an apostle. He was merely being faithful to God's call upon his life as a leader in the body of Christ. I think that clearly this reveals that the Apostle Paul did not want, again, his boldness to be misunderstood by the audience and for them to realize that, and we see it here in the explanation, that Paul really possessed kind of a sanctified self-awareness in his calling as an apostle. And very, very aware of the fact that, yes, he must say what he must say, but also the realization that, uh, of the impact that his words uh, might have upon his readers or upon his listeners. It doesn't mean that Paul wouldn't, uh, you know, doggedly or firmly say whatever the Holy Spirit told him to say, but this reveals that his boldness here uh, was marked by a sensitivity to how hard it would be for people to hear these things. And uh, that's the portion certainly of any Bible teacher is the realization that I must say these things because they're found in God's Word and it's what is intended to be said. But there is also uh, the realization, the thought that is given to this is going to be very hard for many people uh, to hear. And, uh, and even though you can't change the message, that's not the place of the messenger. Uh, but to be sensitive to how hard uh, it, it, it can be for some people to hear the things that are being said and being taught. So Paul was very, very bold in his zeal for God and in his faithfulness uh, to God's truth. But he was not hard-hearted uh, toward people. I always think in this regard concerning Paul, and some of you, most of you are probably aware of it, but some of you may not be aware of it. And if you're not aware of it, you don't know the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, you don't, you, you're missing a key to understanding him and to <clears throat> understand and, and how to receive the tone uh, of a letter, even the hard things that he, that he wrote and, uh, and what was behind the speaking of those hard things. I always think about the regret that Paul felt uh, after sending a very, very exhortive letter to the church at, at Corinth. And, and he writes of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 8. Let me read it to you. And, and he wrote in the follow-up letter to the, the exhortive letter, uh, he said, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, uh, he knew that it had. He knew that that was a hard thing for them to read through. Uh, but he said, I do not regret it. And then here are the words, though I did regret it, as soon as he put that letter in the hand of the messenger to take to Corinth, realizing, <coughs> excuse me, how strong that letter was and how it would uh, even necessarily smite their heart and their mind and their carnality, uh, it's almost like, you know, when you, if you've ever done this, where you've put a letter in the mailbox <clears throat> and closed the thing and now you can't get it, but you'd pay you know, a hundred bucks to be able to get it out. Now you don't want it to go forth. That's kind of what Paul felt, even knowing, excuse me a moment. Even knowing that it needed to be written and, and they needed to hear it. There was that kind of inner agony that he, that he felt. He went on to say, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. But now I rejoice not only that you were, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner, uh, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces uh, death. And so when Paul sent that letter, he, it went out of his control. He didn't know how they would respond to it. And, uh, and, and then later on when he finds out that it had exactly, uh, they responded spiritually to it, it had exactly the effect upon them that it needed to have, uh, then his uh, regret kind of went away and he rejoiced in the fact that, uh, that they had received it in a way that, uh, that it was intended to be received and in a spiritual manner. And I think all of this gives us a glimpse really at the uh, private uh, price that Paul certainly paid, but I think that all leaders pay for having to say uh, hard things uh, in order to be faithful to God. And I think that very often the congregation or uh, the counselee on a one-on-one -on -one kind of uh, basis rarely uh, gets to see this, but it's important to know that most often it's there. Uh, that following sometimes a sermon or the teaching of something that's hard, <clears throat> and then even when it's taught in an exhortive way, or even where that can be one-on-one -on -one in a counseling uh, kind of session, to realize that, <clears throat> that 
very often as the congregation leads or as the councilee leaves, that there can be a sadness, a second guessing, there's spiritual warfare, there can even be regret over uh, what has just happened, even though what has just happened was of the Holy Spirit. And I think that there are certainly leaders that are hard-hearted in this regard, and uh, they uh, do what they do, and they say what they say, and they don't give people a second thought after the sermon or uh, the counseling session, but Paul wasn't uh, one of them. And I think it's important to realize that Paul paid a very high price and a very private price for his faithfulness to God in uh, hard situations, and that this price is paid yet today by those in church leadership. I don't know of anybody, that I don't know of any pastors that, and church leaders that are uh, eager for a fight. Uh, everybody's plate is very, very full as it is. Uh, there's always more in the inbox than uh, we can ever uh, get to. And so nobody's looking for an unnecessary fight or to invite conflict into their life or into uh, a a local uh, church or uh, anything uh, like that. We all want peace, but uh, where a congregation or uh, other Christians can sometimes put their head in the sand or try to ignore something in the hopes that, it, it, that somebody else will address it or it'll just go away if we give it enough time, that leaders within a church, they don't have that kind of a luxury. Uh, they're called by God to rise up and to take care of what others are happy to ignore and, and to uh, address uh, those, those kind of things and uh, confront even the things that God's Word calls them to confront. And so Paul, and to realize this, he wasn't a cyborg. He wasn't half man, half robot. The Apostle Paul wasn't uh, simply a title. Something about somebody, there they are, here he's an apostle, or he's a pastor, or an elder, or a deacon. And uh, all sometimes a body of Christ can see is the title, and not to realize that it's uh, men that God calls to, uh, to stand uh, and, and are behind uh, those titles. And, and so it is with, with all of God's people who he calls to do the hard thing, whether men or women. We notice as well in verse 15 that Paul also made mention of uh, the, the repetition that's represented in the letter, and that he was aware of the fact that uh, much of what he had written to them, uh, they already knew. Uh, he makes mention of the fact that I, I, I am telling you m- most of what I've written in the letter. I'm, I'm speaking it to you by way of, of a reminder. And Paul was very, very well aware, uh, I think as any student of the Bible is, of the repetitive nature of the Bible. And, uh, and uh, certainly Paul was aware of it. Pastors are certainly aware of it. But it's important for a congregation. And again, I speak to you as something that you're already aware of, but by way of reminder. But it is important for a congregation, and I think certainly people that are new to the Bible or new to a church, uh, to be <clears throat> aware of the fact that the Bible is a highly repetitive uh, book. And certainly important to understand that in any church that emphasizes the 
the teaching and the study of the Word of God. The Bible is, uh, is very repetitive, uh, and it is uh, fearlessly so. It is unapologetically so. It repeats uh, the same things uh, and many, many things over and over and over and over again. But it is important as Christians to understand that while the Bible uh, is repetitive, it never engages not one time in vain repetition. God never repeats himself any more often than he needs to repeat himself. And he doesn't repeat himself for his own sake, uh, just to give the book a little, you know, a, a little more depth so that it's a little thicker, so there's a little more pages within uh, the Bible. But he repeats himself because he's uh, aware of his audience in a way that even we as his audience are aware of, of ourselves. I think one of the reasons for the repetition is because we forget so much as Christians. Uh, they've got all of these studies on, on memory, uh, and all of it's very depressing, by the way. Uh, it, it, the, the studies show that within one hour, uh, the average person will have forgotten 40 to 50 percent of any new knowledge that had been imparted uh, to them. I mean, how discouraging is that? Uh, half of it won't even survive an hour. And uh, by 24 hours, we'll have forgotten 70 percent, and within a week, we'll have forgotten 90 percent. So the problem isn't with God, the problem is uh, with us. And uh, in one sense, our memory bank, I think, is less of a memory bank, certainly true as we get older, and it's more of a forgettery. That's what we've got for minds. I, have a, I, I remember certain things, but there's a lot of things that just go through my mind, and unless I earnestly try to remember it, it just goes through. I can, I can read a book, and, uh, uh, and within a week I could read it again almost brand new, except for certain things on it. So I only have two books at home. I just uh, try to, you ask, what are you going to read for the summer? One of my two books. And, uh, and we're, you know, we're all more or less like this. And, and Christians, we're not immune to this, and we're not immune because uh, the subject matter is God, or the subject matter is the Bible. And Paul here, he recognized that even the most mature uh, Christians, and even the most mature uh, churches need reminders of biblical truth. I think another reason for the sheer amount of repetition in the Bible is because uh, the Holy Spirit is changing our lives so dramatically and so quickly into the image of Christ. I don't know what you f feel like, how uh, you, you know, how fast life goes for you and, and what, uh, you know, the intensity of it on a spiritual level and all. I feel week by week that I'm a brand new person. I've made so many mistakes in the previous week and learned from them, but I feel like a new man every week. Uh, certainly as a pastor, uh, reassess what it is that happens on the Sunday morning, the Sunday night in terms of the teaching and what could be better, don't do that again, or this or that, or drawing closer to God, or uh, anything related to administration or one-on-one -on -one within the church. And life is teaching us so many things and so much processing going on between us and God all of the time as Christians. 
And that change that's occurring within our lives uh, means it's so dramatic and and it's so continual and and fast-paced that uh, by the time we revisit these subjects within the Bible, we're entirely new people by the Holy Spirit. We're reading it, 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 we're reading it not as the person we used to be a month ago, much less a year ago. We're reading it as the person that we are now. And that same truth that had uh, this kind of an impact a month ago or a year ago, uh, now we're the kind of person where that truth goes even deeper. We see it in a way that we've never seen it uh, before. And so the need for the repetition in uh, in in that uh, in in that regard, and uh, and the new person that that we are with the new ears that that occurs with this change that's happening in our lives. I think I also think that the Bible is written with a perfect proportion, uh, that every single subject is represented exactly as it's needed to be represented in the Word of God with exactly the frequency, the exact repetition that is required uh, of it. I think the Bible is, of course, perfect in, 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 that, in that regard. And, and uh, it is not only exactly the subject represented exactly as is needed, not, not just in terms of importance, but in terms of what we need to be reminded of continually as Christians. And so when the subject of like holiness or the subject of obedience to God's Word comes up over and over and over again, and every year when I read my Bible and I'm back in the major and the minor prophets and God is driving home this point, chapter after chapter after chapter, and I I stop and I remind myself that I'm no different than the children of Israel, and I need to be reminded of the importance of holiness and and, uh, obedience in a relationship with God, and I uh, embrace those truths because evidently they're truths that, that we need to hear with that kind of of, uh, of frequency. And this is one of the reasons that I think it's uh, our teaching through the entire Bible on Sunday nights from Genesis to Revelation is so uh, important. Because in going through it that way, we hit every single truth in the Bible, but we hit it in the exact proportion in which it's represented within the Bible. Otherwise, my tendency and your tendency would be, but in two entirely different ways, my tendency would be, if I wasn't teaching all the way through the Bible, would be to get up here and uh, uh, teach on my three, four, five hobby horse subjects that are of the most interest to me from the Bible and to teach them every single Sunday, but to disguise them in a way that you can't quite recognize that that's what I'm doing. Uh, or for you to, and, and me, uh, quite apart from being a pastor, from settling in and just reading those sections of the Bible that are of the greatest interest to me or that are my favorites instead of uh, reading through the, the whole thing. And uh, as opposed to just uh, teaching the entire Bible all the way uh, through, or worse yet, I think, for a pastor to uh, spend each week uh, searching for some kind of novel something 
in a Bible passage uh, to preach from that passage that nobody has seen before in order to keep a congregation's attention because uh, the congregation isn't aware that the Bible is not only repetitive, but necessarily uh, repetitive. There's an old saying that uh, if it's new, it isn't true. And if it's true, it isn't new in terms of spiritual truth. If you ever uh, are teaching the Bible or studying the Bible, and you look at a passage, and you see something that no one has ever seen before, be careful with that. Uh, Some of the greatest minds, some of the greatest uh, men and women in human history spending hours and hours and hours every day on their knees poring over uh, the Bible. It's highly unlikely you and I are going to dis- uh, discover something that hasn't already been discovered. What makes things uh, new and kind of unique is to take these uh, ancient truths that are eternal truths and then to apply them uh, to the day and age in which we live. And uh, the culture and the challenges of, of, of the culture, that's what makes it new, but not some, uh, some new, uh, new truth. So the Bible, it's a supernatural book, infinitely deep book, and, uh, and it really opens itself up to, uh, especially to the person who is not put off by its repetition, but really embraces it. Notice in verse 16 that the Apostle Paul describes himself as a minister of Jesus Christ uh, to the Gentiles. And so Paul, he was a, uh, known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel to everybody, but but he was primarily called by God to uh, preach the, to, uh, to the Gentiles. And you might remember, immediately following his conversion and becoming a Christian on the road to Damascus, and he is blinded and knocked off of his high horse, so to speak, and he uh, is led by the hand into the city of Damascus, and he sits uh, in this uh, blindness and and, uh, darkness, thinking about what it is that's just happened to him, this uh, chief persecutor of the church, and, uh, and as he's sitting in some room in Damascus, uh, th- there is another man by the name of Ananias who is in another uh, room in, in Damascus, and the Lord comes to him, uh, and, and Jesus instructs him by way of a vision to go to Paul, lay hands on him so that he might uh, re- regain his sight. Uh, Ananias protested to the Lord uh, and suggested tactfully that this is a man you might want to leave blind, uh, given uh, how dangerous he is to the body of Christ. And, uh, and uh, the Lord said to him, Acts chapter 9, go, for he, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine uh, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And uh, you notice that Paul, uh, here as he describes himself, he doesn't describe himself supremely as a minister to the Gentiles. He describes himself supremely as a minister of Jesus Christ. And as a minister of Jesus Christ, then he was a minister to the Gentiles. 
And that's important for us to understand as Christians and with the realization that God has called every single one of us as Christians, not to just have a personal relationship with God and one day end up in heaven, as wonderful as that is, but that He has also called us to serve Him, to be a part of the advancement of the kingdom of God and of the gospel in, in this world, the building up of the body of Christ within, uh, within this world. And it's important that uh, a lesson in, in our, each of our Christian service, whatever that service uh, might be, and that is the importance of, of loving people and honoring people and blessing people, but to realize that in each of our Christian service, uh, uh, the, the, uh, our, even our greatest love for human beings will fail us as a motivation for doing what God has called us to do. Because sooner or later, God calls us to do things and to make sacrifices within our calling that are so great that we look to God related to the sacrifice and say, God, in all honesty, I, I would never do this, not for uh, another human being, but I will do this for you. And Paul never got those things backwards, and, uh, and, and God called Paul to do a lot of very, very hard things. That yes, he did it for people, but supremely, he did it for God. I mean, what else could explain the, the, Paul's uh, faithfulness through it, just the sheer scope of, of hardship that he endured in his Christian service? as he wrote to the church in Corinth, labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more often, in deaths often, uh, five times received uh, 40 stripes minus one by the Jews, three times beaten with rods, a day and a night in the deep, shipwreck, and as the whole entire uh, list goes as he wrote to them. It is important, uh, and I'm not going to bring all of it out in, in verse 16, but it is important to realize concerning six, verse 16 that Paul speaks of his ministry to the Gentiles in, in bringing them to Christ in Old Testament sacrificial language. Uh, he uses very strong uh, priestly language uh, that he borrows from the Old Testament to describe his ministry uh, to the Gentile world, to their becoming Christians, and then how he viewed all of that uh, in, in, in terms of God. And, and what Paul does in verse 16 is he pictures himself as a priest here. And and using the gospel as the means by which he uh, was able to present his Gentile converts to God as, and to present them now to God as without spot, without blemish, <coughs> as sanctified, as acceptable uh, to God. And by invoking this Old Testament sacrificial language to describe his ministry uh, to the Gentiles and to their salvation, Paul is clearly desiring to communicate to the Jewish Christians within the church there in Rome of God's full acceptance of the Gentiles, of non-Jews, and his full acceptance of them, though they came out of tremendous idolatry, out of tremendous paganism, 
and for the Jewish believers in the church in Rome to realize that God accepted the salvation of the Gentiles and accepted the Gentiles as a result on an equal par with those who came to Jesus Christ as the Jews did out of a background of the Old Testament. And here Paul continues to aim at something that was very, very important to him. And he repeats it over and over and over again in his epistles, and that is his desire for the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles as a a witness to the uh, power of the gospel and the power of God. And in every way he can, he's speaking to the Gentiles to accept the Jews with all of their quirks, and to the Jews to accept the Gentiles with all of their baggage and with all of their uh, history. And he speaks specifically to the Jews here. In essence, these Gentiles, they are holy in their salvation. They are acceptable to God. They are not second-class citizens in God's eyes. And it is important that if any of us have been raised in the church or we have become Christians after living a relatively good and moral uh, life, those sinners, but we came to Christ after being what the world would look at and say, that is a good person, that we should never look down upon any Christian who's come, become a Christian from a life of very, very deep sin or paganism or, or deep degradation in terms of the life that was lived. And Paul declares it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the power of the gospel and the spiritual birth. Uh, because of this, every Christian has been sanctified by the Holy Spirit and is acceptable to God. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And though Paul, as he lays out here in Philippians chapter 3, he describes himself, and this is the self who wrote the letter to Rome. He describes himself there as circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. He considered his ministry as a Jew to the Gentiles, even as a Jew that was deeply Jewish, Jewish in a way that the Jews would even be envious of. And yet he says, coming from even that background, he considered his ministry as a Jew to the Gentiles to be a privilege. He considered it to be something to glory in, as he describes it there in verse uh, 17. I think that a couple of the translations are very, very helpful here. The Amplified Bible puts verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then, I have found legitimate reason for boasting in things related to uh, my service to God. Phillips translation puts it this way. And I think I have something to be proud of. Uh, Through Christ, of course, in my work for God. And here he is speaking of his ministry to the Gentiles. Most of us in this room are non-Jews, maybe exclusively so. Uh, We are uh, Gentiles, 
And because most of us are Gentiles, uh, we cannot even begin to understand not only the hardship, the physical hardship that Paul endured in his ministry to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but then to understand the stigma that he bore as a Jew as a result of uh, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as he did so in those days. I mean, throughout the entire Jewish world, the Apostle Paul was hated. He was abhorred. His name was a swear word. I mean, if, you, if his physical presence created riots, for his name to be used from the Holy Land, from Jerusalem, all the way through the Roman Empire, for it to be spoken, to even be heard among the Jews, was like somebody cursing in, in their uh, presence. And to realize that was what Paul was. That was how he was viewed by his brethren in order to be faithful to what God had called him to do in taking the gospel to the Gentiles as he uh, did. And you put yourself in Paul's place. I mean, to go to bed every single night and put your head down on that pillow and knowing that he was hated, he was viewed as a traitor, he was viewed as a blasphemer, all because of his ministry to the Gentiles for simply obeying God and telling them that salvation was based solely upon faith in Jesus Christ and not in the keeping of the law or the prophets. And for the Apostle Paul, I don't know what level of rejection you have experienced in life, even apart from Christ, or what rejection you have experienced as a Christian because of being a Christian. But here you have the Apostle Paul, every day living in this. It is his waking reality. It is, it is uh, his final uh, waking thought before he goes to bed uh, each, each night to know that this is what virtually the entire Jewish world uh, thought of him. This is what the, his entire spiritual heritage that he had given the entire early part of his life uh, into. These people that he had worked so hard to please and, and people that he still loved and to realize this is what they thought of him. And think about the weight of that. The weight of being despised and rejected and hated by so many I mean, in a way that the va all of us together perhaps haven't experienced uh, in, in our lives. But we all experience it to some degree. And think about all of that, the weight of that upon your heart and upon your mind, the weight of carrying that kind of rejection through life, the emotional toll. Uh, the mental toll of it for simply being faithful to God's calling uh, upon his life and preaching God's invitation to salvation to the Gentiles. And yet for all of that, 
And I mean, that, that's something you can take a, a, a four-hour hike to get your mind around that. And yet, for the, not just the physical price that Paul paid in order to be the apostle to the Gentile, but the spiritual price, the emotional price, the mental price that he paid. And yet, for all of that, he considered his ministry and the life that he was living uh, for God to be an absolute uh, privilege. Well, he had to be comparing it to something to consider a privilege in the light of something. And what was that something? Well, that something could be many things, but certainly as opposed to remaining the human being that he once was, as opposed to being the human being and continuing to be the person that was capable of imprisoning and killing people in the name of God for simply becoming Christians. And doing so as a condition for receiving the praise and the acceptance and the promotions of those who hated him now. And you ask yourself, which of the two would be the harder thing uh, to live with? Even in our own Christian lives and the rejection that we face in our own Christian lives for being faithful to God. And what would be the harder thing to live with? to still be the person that we once were before becoming a Christian, or to now experience what is for all of us the inevitable relationship loss that each of us uh, experiences when we become Christians. And we experience simply because God has saved us and is now working to make us into a person who is vastly superior than the person that we uh, once uh, were as as a result. And Paul's answer was that however much he was misunderstood as a result of being a Christian, however much his name and his reputation was being maligned, however much he was even hated by other people, he gloried in Jesus who had saved him, and he gloried in God's call upon his life. This morning, perhaps there are some of us here this morning who are experiencing some great loss relationally, some painful isolation, rejection, slander as a result of of our Christian faith and our faithfulness to God's calling upon our lives. And like Paul, the importance of just stopping and thinking about who and what you would be today apart from your salvation and apart from your faithfulness to what God has called you to do with your life. Where would you be in life? apart from salvation? What kind of person would you uh, be today if you hadn't been saved and then further sanctified in a way that Christian service sanctifies us and changes us? And you and me and we will conclude, I think, like Paul, that it is an absolute privilege. As he puts it here, it is a glory. It is a reason for boasting to live this Christian life and to serve God at whatever the cost, even no matter how great and how painful 
the rejection that results. And Paul wanted these Jewish Christians in Rome to understand it uh, most of all. Jesus taught, blessed are those who uh, are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, that's a nice thing for Jesus to say. It's a nice sentiment. And it's so easy to hear words like that, especially after we've walked with the Lord for a while and have it go in one ear and out the other and not have it to be believed and not have it to be embraced right here, right now, and the right here and now of our circumstances in our Christian life. So allow me to read it one more time to you. Jesus himself, blessed are you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we'll end there this morning. And perhaps I've, I've read in, in the study of all of this, there were pastors that got all the way through chapter, verse 14 through 33 in a, king, a single sitting. And uh, listen to me, I'm already regretting, aren't I? the private regret that I'll take away. Maybe it's because I've, I don't quite uh, want uh, our time in the book of Romans to end. Or maybe we just kind of, uh, it, it, what we saw was enough this morning uh, to give us uh, uh, just a few bites of something uh, to meditate upon and, and uh, make our own and bring perspective into our lives without it kind of all being washed away as, as one great truth and reality is heaped upon another. And so, whatever the reason it is, so much to be thankful for in Paul and so much to learn from him, not only in his doctrine and in his teaching, but in who he was and how he saw things as it's revealed in passages like this. Let's stand now together and we'll pray. And before we do pray, I just want you to know that if you stand here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, you've already heard this isn't the easiest life in the world to live, but it's the only life. It's the only thing that can really be called life. It's a privilege uh, to live it and, uh, and the opportunity to begin that relationship with God is extended, I do, on behalf of God to you this morning. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for by putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, Currently studying the book of Ezekiel, 6 o'clock this evening, each of you are invited. 
Father, we thank you for <clears throat> this really priceless gift, <clears throat> excuse me, of this glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul and what he endured, what he went through, what went through his uh, heart and through his mind in order to how to process it for him to not only finish his race and his calling, but to finish it well and for our lives to be impacted by his life here these 2,000 years later. And we pray that the truths that we've looked at today that have application to each of our lives and our walk with you, that you would continue to speak to us about those things and, and firmly implant them in our relationship with you, Lord, long after we leave this sanctuary today in order that we might enjoy the quality and the beauty and the fruitfulness of of, of life that the Apostle Paul did. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.